This is a HeadGum Podcast. Good One is sponsored by Spotify. Hello, and welcome to Good One, the podcast in which a comedian plays one of their jokes and then discusses the process and thinking behind it. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. This is a special episode for me, partly because usually when we talk to a guest, they pick a joke from earlier in their career or a project they're promoting. Our guest this week, Cameron Esposito, picked a joke from material she has yet to release. As you'll hear in the interview, she's just so passionate about her upcoming hour that she couldn't imagine talking about anything else. The second thing, which you'll hear instantly when we play the joke she picked, is that Esposito is trying to do something that's never been done before. As she explains, when she saw that some in the press have already started writing comeback stories for the powerful men accused of sexual misconduct, she set out to put together a full hour about sexual assault and her experience with it, both personally and as a comedian. The result is striking. It's hard-hitting, poignant, joyful, tragic, empowering, and a million more adjectives all while being really, really funny. It's easily one of the highlights of my career to get to talk to Cameron about it on this podcast. One thing I want to note before we get into, as Cameron calls it, her rape joke is uh, in the conversation she says she doesn't know yet what she's going to do with the material, but that she wants to get it out as soon as possible so she can best respond to this current moment. You know, usually a comedian of her level set a date, you know, months in the future to film a special, and then usually months pass before the network would release it. Just days after our conversation, Cameron actually taped her upcoming hour, which she's going to be calling Rape Jokes. And now we can tell you here first that she plans to release it online on June 11th. With it, and I'm, I'm really excited about this, premiering exclusively on Vulture. Because she just wants people to see the special, Cameron is aiming to put the set out with a pay-what-you-can structure, with proceeds going to an organization that works to support victims and curb sexual assault. Stay tuned to Vulture and CameronEsposito.com for more info on all of this. So, here is Cameron Esposito's rape joke, and then Cameron and I talking about all that went into coming up with it. Enjoy. I think it's something that we need to talk about. Because we also don't talk about what it's like to be a survivor. Survivors are in TV and film all the time, especially like women. They're always depicted one way. It's like, she's assaulted, and then she becomes very good at swords. <laughs> there seems to be some sort of combat relationship. That was not my experience. I stayed the same amount good at swords. <laughs> Expert. <laughs> it wasn't the effect in my life. For me, the biggest effect was that I'm just sort of afraid of men. And I want to say, there's, there's so many dudes in the audience tonight, and I really I appreciate the way you've been like, listening with open body posture, and, like responsive faces. Do you know how much that means to me? Because when I say I'm sort of a scare, scared of men, there, there's usually like there's one guy, there's always like one guy who's just like, wait a minute, and then like, whoops, get 22, I'm scared of you. Because you've been scared, you know, and that guy really makes me worried. He makes me worried for my straight sisters, because I am in solidarity straight people, I want you to know I'm an ally. And from an outsider's perspective, this is an outsider's perspective, I'm not sure that you talk to each other. Obviously, assault and harassment happens in my community. But I'm just saying, like, I will read, like, a sex advice column, and there's, like, a there's like a letter from some dude that's just like, how do I know if she came? And I'm like, oh, my God, are you in the room? Like, how? <laughs> how is this the easiest way to get the answer? <laughs> Tell him! Like, when I, from an outsider's perspective, 
each other from across the room and Legoing their bodies together. And I don't want that for you. I'm here with the person behind that joke, Cameron Esposito. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, Jesse. It's so nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you as well. Um, I really like how on your podcast you have people introduce yourself themselves, and I don't, I have not seen an interview where someone asks you to do it, so I'm going to ask you to do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, so do you want to ask me? Uh, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Cameron Esposito. I'm a stand-up comic. I'm a writer. I'm an actor, and I am a wearer of jackets. <laughs> Aren't we all? Um, no, not everybody. Oh, sorry. I am also aware of jackets. Are you? Well, yeah. then we have that just, in common. Just not right now. Um, but other outside of here I am. Uh, before we talk about talking about sexual assault on stage, if it's okay, I want to talk about not talking about it on stage. Um, you always had a couple jokes about Law & Order SVU, specifically like across your albums and ours, but uh, at least as far as I know, we've never really discussed your experience. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what the resistance was? That's a great question. I'm so glad to start there, really, because I think it frames the whole thing. So it's hard for me to talk about this because I had one of those experiences in college where, um, well, first of all, I, I was in a terrible position because I was at a college where I couldn't come out mm -hmm. and I was realizing I was gay. And this was also during the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal, and I was very Catholic, and I was living in Boston. This all happened against the backdrop of realizing some things about my church, um, reading also what the church said about women, and then on top of that, realizing that I was gay and not having anyone that I could tell. So I was in bad shape. I was in really bad shape, and um, something that I did to cope was drank and partied and hung out with dudes just to sort of have the cover of a guy, you know, because it, it's very hard to figure out if you're valuable, if you're a woman who's realizing she's gay in this, in this culture, and our culture puts so much of women's value on their fuckability. I'm mm -hmm. going to say that sure. on this vulture <laughs> podcast. Um, and so if you're like, well, I don't even want to do that, then what does that mean about your value? Are you valueless? So all of that was going on in my life. And um, I also had somebody who kind of repeatedly would encourage me to, to put myself in bad positions. So somebody that was like a drinking buddy, but that was invested in me drinking a lot so that I would hang out with him mm -hmm. um, and also provided the alcohol. And so it was in that situation that I was, I don't even use the word raped, which is weird because I, I didn't realize what had happened to me until a bunch of years later. Mm -hmm. I used to tell this story to people as like a funny joke. Like yeah. this is how disconnected, you know, I was from my own agency and my agency over my body. I was like, yeah, this guy like totally like, like got me drunk, you know? And then I was just like drunk and naked and like my roommates came in and I was like drunk and naked and he was like on top of me and it was so funny. And um, it was a male friend of mine who was like, Cameron, what you're describing is date rape. Like you were assaulted. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and I was like, oh yeah, like that is what happened. But this is such a taboo topic. I didn't know this had happened to me. Yeah. And even in the new hour where I'm trying to talk about it, like this is what I hope to work in next is how hazy it is when 
your story isn't um, the archetypal story about sexual assault, which is that thing of like, I was knocked down by a stranger and I knew when it started and I knew when it ended. Mm -hmm. um, that was not my story. So I haven't talked about it on stage because like, how do you fit all of that information in? What I figured out is you have to do the full hour. Yeah. Like you can't just do it halfway. You have to really do it. And this felt like the time to do that. Yeah. Is it a thing that, you know, you're, you're a comedian, you're, you're pulling from your personal experience, you know, had it come up where you're like, oh, maybe I should talk about it. Or were you sort of talking about things on stage and you're like, it comes in your head is like, talk about it. And you're like, oh no, not talk about it. I know. Um, I was listening to the episode of Put Your Hands Together from the week after the election, I think, and you sort of tell part of the story, but you don't say that, you don't, you sort of allude to something happened, but you don't say that you were assaulted. Um, you just sort of, I had a friend who did bad things to me, and then one time he sort of ran at me. Had it been a thing that for, you know, you're, we're talking about probably 15 years or so over of doing comedy that it came to your head that you sort of had to push it down? Well, I mean, this is going to be really intense, but this is just real. I think I feel a general unsafety all the time in the world and especially around men um, because this was my story. Because when I was coming out and I was in my most vulnerable place, I really thought I was going to hell. My parents didn't take it well at first. I didn't have friends I could tell. Uh, the first person I told didn't talk to me for the rest of the school year. So like... I don't know that I've ever really re-trusted people. Mm -hmm. And then especially like this man wanted something from me that I like couldn't give him. Um, and so he took it. And I think like hearing the audio, the, the audio of Donald Trump, the grab, the grab them by the pussy audio, which is about what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. which is that taking what you want. Um, I will maybe never, again, that was another like marker that like I will maybe never recover from having had that happen to me, having had somebody like just not care mm -hmm. about what I wanted. Um, and then hearing somebody say that's his whole MO and then having that person become president, I was just like, well, I guess, I mean, as a comic, you're, I think that, Sometimes you talk about things on stage because you just, you get to this point, you're like, I can't not talk about this. I have to, I can't not. Yeah. This is where I'm at. I think that's what happened for me with the election. So I just couldn't you, not talk about it anymore. So, so you eventually tweeted about, tweet about the experience. You said, it, you know, it, as you said, it feels ridiculous to come out about sexual assault on Twitter, but honestly, it can be a good weapon and I will use it. Was there... Did you talk to two people before you tweeted that? And sort of, you know, can you talk about that moment and sort of what led up to it? And then what did you expect from it? And then what did you find from it? I didn't talk about people before doing it. Um, my wife, Rio, is very supportive after. I will say that I initially felt like shame. I mean, that's really true. Not not just like the shame of like that this having that this happened to me, but it's so hard to figure out how to communicate this to people because mm -hmm. it's not something you can just like bring up in casual conversation. And I have this platform. So I was like, well, I, I don't feel like, and this was also kind of like prior to the Me Too thing 
Um, or I can't remember exactly when that tweet would have been. It would have been that, after the inaugural. So it was right after the Women's March. Right. But I think it's before the Harvey Weinstein part of it. Yeah, so it was like before the whole... Um, and, and by the way, in my television show, Take My Wife, we wrote in 2015 an episode where Cameron and Rhea, are the characters that Rhea and I play, where they come out to another comic about being survivors of assault after that comic tells a rape joke, mm -hmm. because that is something oh, yeah. that's been a part of my life. And in 2014, I wrote an, a column in the AV Club about how I want comics to tell rape jokes. I just want them to be good, and yeah. I want them to be jokes that work for, that work for justice and that work for, like the greater good of understanding. Because the thing is, is like, rape jokes, rape jokes are usually kind of bad. Like yeah. they're they're not like well done, and they're not really interesting. I haven't seen a ton of rape jokes that I feel like break new ground. I feel like um, I've seen a lot of rape jokes, and I think people assume women don't want to hear rape jokes. And I'm like, I want you to talk about this. Mm -hmm. I just, like, be good at it. Yeah, Care enough to be good at it. Don't just use the fact that people will laugh because you said rape in public. And it's be like, that's a good word. Yeah. Like, you're, che you're cheating. I mean, even just, like, have more respect for yourself as a comic than just using a taboo word to get a laugh. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. I have never used taboo words to, to get a laugh. And, like, I kind of just... I mean, it's this is a challenge that I would throw to other comics is, like, I don't need to do that. Yeah. Don't do like don't don't just throw something out. Um but yeah, your question was about like the tweet. I mean, I I uh I think I was very ashamed to use Twitter that way. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what else to do. And then after you it's so funny but like, and then you sent the tweet, but right. so you then sent a tweet and then I imagine a lot of the response was sort of positive, I have, at least from people that you'd want it to be positive. Some so people how, how even wrote feel? about it. Yeah. Like there was we, like, we wrote yeah, an article there about was, it. Yeah, there was, some, there was some coverage on it, um, which I didn't expect. That was what I didn't expect, um, was that anybody would kind of care. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I Did, mean, <laughs> so, I mean, at what point, I guess, then from then to then doing it on stage? I mean, it's obviously different to type it as it is to sort of say it out loud. I remember even, I was listening to your interview with Evan Rachel Wood, and you talk about it, but you have a hard time even admitting it, even though this was months after you came out about it. And then on stage is a person, is lots of people you don't know their experience, and it's you're in a stand-up venue. So what was that next step? Was it as another, was it equally as hard to even then talk about yeah, Evan was so brave to just like come out in a matter of fact way about her experience when she was on my podcast query. And I just felt like I had to kind of hang with her in that moment. But I made a choice because I'm interviewing somebody. And so I don't want to like totally center myself. But also that show is kind of about like me meeting people where they are and like trying to have commonality. So I just felt like, holy shit, like do I now say that me, say me too? Or like do I keep talking about her experience. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like the right thing to do was to come out to her about it. Um, but again, also not knowing somebody's experience, I will say like, there is also, I think there's a scale and we really do like under, um, not value, cause that's not the right word, but like what happened to me, date rape, I think we, we ignore that mm -hmm. often. Um, 
And so not knowing the specifics of her story, then I'm like trying to meet somebody in the middle, but also not trying to diminish what they're, what they're coming in with. I mean, it's really fucking complicated. Yeah. And um, the, re- the way that I got to the place where I knew I needed to do this on stage was that like I waited. I waited for someone to say what I felt about this topic because I didn't feel like I wanted to be the voice on this. I wanted to hear like some voices. And um, instead what I saw was a lot of centering of dudes who did bad things. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of articles that detailed the things that those dudes did. And I saw a lot of people talking about um, how sad they were that they lost their heroes and like people having to reorganize, like uh, conversations about art versus artist. And like, it just went to places where like, man, that's not the first place my brain goes. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to know, how are you still alive? If this happened to you, like, how are you doing? Yeah. Like, what what is your day like? How did you trust? How did you have a relationship after this? How do you have sex when sex is related to sexual violence? Rape is not sex, but how do you separate the two? I also, I had an eating disorder as a young person, and it, the similarity that I'm going to present, present to you is like when you're in recovery from alcohol or drug addiction, the thing that you can do is not drink or use drugs. When you're in reco- recovery from an eating disorder, yeah. you still need to eat. So again, like if you're somebody who's recovering from sexual violence, how do you have human connection? How do you go out in the world? How, do you, how are you not scared? Yeah. And I also feel like it's not one guy. Like we can take down whatever the growing number is. Like the eight dudes whose names we all know. And that doesn't change shit because those people, like they should, they should um, be shamed. And I think that they should face consequences. Um, But this is culture. Yeah. This isn't eight guys. This is culture. Yeah. And if anything, having eight guys makes it easier not to have everyone decide what they're doing, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Having the eight guys separates you from the eight guys. And I also see, like, who I want to talk to, I want to talk to, like, straight, white, cisgender dudes about this. Um, or they don't have to be white. Straight, white, <laughs> cisgender dudes. Um, and I want to tell them that, like, I also have had sex with a lot of women. And this is something that I have to think about as somebody who has sex with women. I've had sex with women who are survivors. Um, so, like, we actually have a lot in common, y- you and I. Mm-hmm. random dude. Um, I understand that you probably are afraid, like that you're afraid that you might fall into this category. I understand that maybe you can look back at things that you've done in your life and you're not sure what those events were. Maybe you were young. Maybe you didn't get sex ed. Maybe culture didn't prepare you to be at college with alcohol around. And maybe you never knew that women had agency over their own bodies. And I want to hang with you and I want to fix that or at least talk about it. Yeah, I mean, as a, a professional talker, at minimum, you're giving people vocabulary to have conversations, which which they probably want to have and don't have. I mean, you're just like, oh, you're putting in words people with a lot of different experiences probably are desperate for. So you, you realize you you could not do it sort of as one joke, your experience, because it's so big. So was it at that time you were like, I'm going to do an hour about this? I woke up in the middle of the night and I lit- literally woke up in the middle of the night and like sat up in bed and just went like rape jokes. Like I knew I wanted to write an hour 
and the working title, I don't know if I, that's what I will use, is yeah. Rape Jokes. That's what came to me first. Because, again, when we talk about assault, it's, it's like, um, it's always very, like, men versus women. It's always very, um, these really black and white cases. That's, that's also what tends to be joked about. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, these are rape jokes. Like, mm-hmm. jokes about culture and my experience and my whole life, like this hour, this is rape jokes. Yeah. Like, what if this was when you Googled rape jokes? What if this was I the know. first thing that came up? Not that stupid Christopher Hitchens article. Yeah, I'm gonna go on like about whether or not like women are funny and then and then we have to go down that rabbit hole and then we start on the the concept of women are fun, aren't funny and then we go to rape jokes and it's like suddenly we're harpies women are unfunny harpies that are <laughs> telling you what you can't talk about yeah and it's pc culture that's keeping you down but if it wasn't for pc culture you'd be fucking brilliant no man no <laughs> it's also so funny because like generally it was a woman told the rape joke that like kicked off the wave right sarah silverman's rape joke about i think it's like i got raped by a doctor which is complicated for a jewish woman which is a very good joke, and also then made everyone be like, oh, rape jokes are a thing we're allowed to do, and then a million men told bad ones. And it's got completely removed from anything. It's just, it became just math of, like, where can we put rape into a joke to make it, right? If the, if there were sexual assault jokes, they would be taken out because rape's a funnier-sounding word. It's shorter. <laughs> right, right, right. Totally. Um, so I assume you write mostly on stage. I just have the sense, like... How did you guess? <laughs> also, I feel like most people do, but... Before we, we talk specifically about swords, what I, I find so fascinating about comedy is so many comedians say they run a stage, but it means a completely different thing for every different comedian. Oh, yeah, okay. So what does your version of writing on stage mean? Like, what do you kind of go up with and then get to when you go up with that? First of all, I want to just take a minute and say, like, good job giving cred to Sarah, who I think introduced this topic, and I mean, like, She's just inherently doing a different thing. Mm-hmm. When you are, oh, look, nobody, no, these, this is not saying that things are off limits. When you are in the group that is most often a victim or a survivor of a certain thing, you get to joke about it differently. Yes. So Sarah is also a brilliant joke writer and an amazing, uh, she's an extremely captivating performer on stage. So she gets to get a, away with a lot. Um, and she gets to get away with more than you do, guy. <laughs> she just does because yeah. of who she is. And, it's, and that's not, it's not her using that as a crutch. That's her knowing her power and using it the right way. And knowing what she's being subversive about. Yes, exactly. And, know, and knowing all reasons of it, not just being like, oh, I know it's a subversive to say rape on stage. That is not what she's, she right. is. She is subversive to be a woman and be not to, to imply that rape is not bad in a circumstance. To take the power out of it yeah. also. She's saying it like, here I am and I don't even know how to feel about this. That's like, that's not how I feel. I mean, she's taking the power out of it and that's an interesting thing to do. Like mm-hmm. we should explore a bunch of different things, put the power back in it. You know, like there's, there's a lot of things we can explore, but if you're, um, but if you're doing it right, it should explore something. Yes. Um, cool. Awesome. So on to writing. Writing on stage. Uh, I come out with like bullet points. Um, actually, they're little dashes, little dash, and then a, and like a one or two word concept, and then I talk about that. 
for this particular show, I did it in a way I've never done it before. I rented these, rented or performed at these small black box theaters, black box theaters. So I did it in Sacramento um, and in Grand Rapids, in Chicago, in New York, in Brooklyn, and in um, Nashville, and part of it in um, Alabama. And I'm gonna continue to do it in like Durham. Because I was trying to diversify where the audience. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm look, this is gonna sound very arrogant, but it's just true. Right now, usually when I perform, I'm in for, performing in front of an audience that came just to see me. Mm-hmm. So like um, a good thing to do would be to perform for just an audience that doesn't give a shit about me, but it's hard to find an hour where you can do that. So I was just like, well, if it's a really small audience, that means you have to work harder because a bigger audience laughs easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also meant that I could kind of do it in a safe way. Um, and then it also meant that I wasn't like putting anybody in a bad position because that's another thing that I was trying to make sure that like folks also felt okay hearing this yeah. material. Like it's not like super, it, ne- it never gets like super violent. Um, but you know, there's people come up to me after every show and I was doing shows in front of 50 to 100 people. And I'm talking about like 10 people out of that audience. Um, which means like actually there's a bunch of people that also didn't come yeah, up. Yeah. Um, but were coming up to me and saying like, I'm a survivor too and our stories are similar or our stories are dissimilar. And I just want to make sure to know that. Because that's another thing. I think a lot of comics operate as if the audience um, has no experience with sexual assault. There's like an assumption um, that we're talking about something that's a concept. Yeah, and it's interesting. In the uh, version of the hour I saw, you go like, they're survivors in the audience. It's weird as a comedian to acknowledge the audience has life experience at all. (laughs) (laughs) Is it? Oh, yeah, no, I guess that's true. Yeah. So it is... But then that, and then you sort of sit in it, and then I imagine the audiences maybe look around, or they can they feel something, and it's it's an interesting thing to do to connect, and to sort of reestablish that you're having a conversation. Obviously, you're the only one talking, but it, it then means the sort of tone in which um, you're doing the stand-up, at least currently, is different than the tone I think the previous. All the all every other time I've seen you is different. The tone is, um, for lack of a better word, you are quieter. You're, oh yeah. I mean, in this joke in particular, less yelling. Less yelling. <laughs> but this joke in particular is probably the quietest joke I've seen you tell. Yeah. Um, so with this one, did you you had did you have swords in your head, or do you like you want to talk about the fact that we we don't talk about what it means to be a survivor, and then you're like, we don't talk about what it means to be a survivor, because another thing that, um, I mean, this is rape is in so much television and so many movies I think that if you I'm I'm particularly sensitive to it so like I don't know if other survivors are I'm unsure Mm -hmm. but I will say that I can tell like right away if it's going to be in a movie or I can um there's a certain thing that like male characters that are supposed to be creepy will do if they're like menacing devils they they will kiss or lick women on the face that they're going to kill. Um, mm-hmm. 
it doesn't it it can be like a Marvel movie and that can still happen. And that's like sexualized. Even that, I'm like, okay, like this is something that um I'm just aware of. I'm aware of it all the time. I'm aware of it. it it's in like all of my favorite shows have a threat of sexual violence. And I guess I just don't know like I mean, are you aware of that? Do you when you watch a show, do you like notice? I, I mean, I'll say I noticed that a lot of shows have sexual assault in it. I don't think until you said it that I noticed that they don't really focus as much on the personal experience of what it means to be a survivor afterwards. I, other than like, and I was thinking back even doing it and preparing for the interview. Right? It's like it happens. And there's maybe a scene where they're unhappy about it. But you don't get a total sense of this is continuing to define my character. Whether like it's like Joan on Mad Men might have left that situation and and for some reason has felt empowered since. But there's no sort of direct connection or Khaleesi on Game of Thrones, right? Like she's in this relationship with a husband who is hypothetically sexually assaulting her and she then becomes this thing. But there's no direct connection, right? Same thing and... Um, what's the name of the the main, the other, the current queen in the show, right? She's also oh, like yeah. essentially in a that type of situation. Lena Headey, who yeah. also is, I mean, I don't know if you I don't know if you said dread, but speaking of Lena Headey yeah. acting as a character that uh, deals with a lot of sexual violence, um, she plays like a super villain in that movie. And well, I think what you're talking about, which is where, where what this joke is trying to talk, to point to is that assault is used as an origin story for yeah. strong female characters Con- constantly, almost to the point that we can't have a strong female character that we then don't flash back. Mm-hmm. I'll give you the perfect example of this, Kill Bill. Yeah. I actually left Kill Bill and asked for my money back. It's the only time I've ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> um but I mean, like all those moments that you're talking about, like I watch Game of Thrones. I absolutely remember that moment where I was like, oh no, because I also like really have a giant crush on um, <laughs> Khal Drogo. What's his name? Oh, I like, sure. think he's so handsome. He's exactly my type, which is like a very, very muscular giant dude uh, in that sphere. That's sure. my type. Um, uh, I, I stopped watching Mad Men when that situation, when Joan was like thrown on the floor and assaulted by her. I can't remember if their husbands or, or fiancés at the time. Fiance, yeah. um, I just have to step away from it. Like I can't, I can't watch it and not have a huge reaction. And I don't. I'm not even trying to say to like showrunners or writers like take this out. But here's some things I would maybe think about. Number one, um, it's it's way more effective than maybe you realize it is for uh, survivors, and that is such a huge percentage of our population. Like it's like one in six women. Um, so it's, it's way more than you think it is. It's like, it's echoing through other episodes. It's something that they're thinking about for the whole rest of, this is my perspective. Someone else could say, no, I don't give a shit, but this is me. Um, and then the other thing I would say is like, could it just, could you, could it just not always be the origin story? Because it would make it more, Effective. Like, if you really want to use that tool, can you have other people on the show or other people in the movie not have that experience? I think it it does something to. I mean, I'm gonna make this is this is a uh, me just making a generalized guess, 
that I think it is overrepresentation of men writing and creating shows and movies up until this point that has created this thing where like maybe you're not you're not it's you don't have a lived experience of what it is to be a woman so you don't understand why women can be powerful but it's not assault that's not the thing like the bride isn't powerful because she was because she had her head beat in and was like left for dead and the bride isn't powerful because she was assaulted while she was in a coma like the bride is powerful because um like Uma Thurman is a badass and a great actor and um because it's a captivating story and because Zoe Bell is really good at stunts. <laughs> so would you go on stage and sort of talk through all of this and then sort of just land on the, the most succinct way of saying it is swords? Was that sort of how it went? <laughs> I think I just kind of assumed that people would know what I meant. But <laughs> I mean, I did. It's sort of it's just sort of one of the shorter jokes. It's like one, it's one of the I shorter the and longest joke, jokes and, and it's like ever. a joke joke, right? It's yeah. just a classic misdirection. Yeah. So it's sort of like... Right. Surprised one that that was what he wanted to focus on, but I had to imagine there's sort of all this behind it that landing on this is for this part of the hour where you then sort of transition to a longer section and a much more complicated section, you know, what it means to have this be this length and be what it is. Yeah. I mean, I chose it for us to talk about because it is a rape joke. Yeah. It is a rape joke. Like whether what you think rape jokes are, this is a rape joke. It's a th it's thirty seconds. It's class. Like you said, there's classic misdirection. It's not a it's not a Cameron Esposito um, signature patented seventy two minute story. <laughs> yeah, it's just a joke, and I wanted to point that out. Like this is something that is a rape joke. When um, you know, all comedians, especially if you're writing on stage, you're monitoring how an audience is responding. What has it been like with this? Where you have to I have, have to imagine also seeing. Um, if like maybe your things might be triggering or not, you know, is it has it made you really more aware of the audience than you thought you could be? Well, I'm always I've always been historically pretty aware and connected yeah. to the audience, and I think because of the the topics that I tend to talk about, um, people get like very emotionally invested in my stand up as opposed to like number one, it's just funny, like it's just funny and stupid and silliness, and we're having a good time. But then there's always kind of like an uh, an undercurrent of like we're all in it together and like let's let's focus on that too and I, I think that means that I get maybe a wider reaction range of reactions than a lot of comics like for instance crying mm -hmm. crying um, folks cry a lot of times after shows mm -hmm. because it's like there's a comic on stage talking about being queer from a position of power and safety and comfort and a lot of audience members. I certainly have straight folks that come to see me, but for queer folks, they maybe haven't seen that before. Like makes people cry all the time. Um, this show actually makes people cry during it yeah. sometimes, uh, even though it's also like very funny. Like I just mean people are like laughing their heads off the whole time, but 50 minutes in, five zero, is when I actually talk about what happened to me. And it's awful because it is quiet, which is the, I had to, that is what I had to work on the most. I didn't want it to be funny. Like when I actually say mm -hmm. like, this is my story, I didn't want it to be funny. Um, but it's really, it's a really bad feeling as a comic yeah. Yeah. to be on stage and to not be getting laughs. Right now it's like about two minutes long or maybe something like that. And then I get the audience back, but I had some closer friends come see it 
my friends Jen Richards, who's a great actor, and my friend Emily Gordon, who like is hyper familiar with stand up from her work on The Meltdown as a producer for a really long time. And both of them were like, I think that silent moment could be longer. Could you make that like five minutes or eight minutes? And I was like, look, I agree with you, but it is, I am dying up there. Like it's terrible. It's a terrible feeling. So vulnerable, awful. We were talking a little bit, you're currently, I believe, performing this show. The public facing title of it is Cameron Esposito's Top Secret Public Experiment. Which <laughs> that's where I've been. Yeah, that's what I've been calling is, it. Which when is I've a been, very whimsical title <laughs> yes. for what it becomes. <laughs> Great point. Why not only not sort of prepare people, but ultimately sort of prepare them for the opposite? Yeah, I mean, I will say I've been also introducing the show. So like, I come out oh, okay. up top, um, and then I usually have an opener. So I come out up top and I tell folks what's going to happen. Um, kind of like thinking that maybe someone should leave. Like, I'm like, this is the most personal hour of stand-up I've done, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the, like an opener does about 10 minutes and then I come back out and do this as like a full piece. Um, I mean, honestly, it's just that like, if this was something that you could watch on a, a laptop or television or an album, I'm, in, I'm inclined to think Rape Jokes is a great title for that. Yeah. But for an evening that you're trying to get someone to come see, I can't imagine selling tickets for something called rape jokes. It seems yeah. like it seems like Or you might sell like tickets to people who are like, that's my favorite type well, of Well, number one that, but number two, I also think like this isn't the hour is it is fucking fun yeah. and like lighthearted. And there are some like like some, you know, applause breaks that are on par with things I've gotten in other hours. So I also didn't want folks to feel like it was a somber theater piece because that is not what I do as a comic. Eventually you will be like, this is now a thing that I will tell people what they're going to see. I'd have to imagine. <laughs> you, you can't, like eventually, I, once you feel like this is the show, do you have a sense of sort of what it is moving forward? Like, would you do it in a theater where people are like, well, this is, you know, there, some comedians do one-man shows or one-person right. shows. And the easiest ways for people to be comfortable with silence is they're like, well, this is a theater piece. I mean, like, um, it's it's an interesting thing to see. But then, well, I, I, I understand why you wouldn't want to do that. But let, I'll let you explain what you think you're going to do. <laughs> um, I would do that. Except that I think there's also a timeliness to this. Um, it's not like I think this like conversation is going to be over or fixed. But what I do see is that we're moving on a little bit. I've started seeing some like rehabbing their images pieces sure. and also a bunch of like industry news about different like uh, Me Too focused television shows that might happen and. Um, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think I have something to say. I would like to enter the pantheon of this conversation. I would like to be a part of this before we move on from this mm-hmm. because I think what I'm saying is something that's a little different than what other people are saying. Yeah. Um, I think it's like survivor-focused, trying to move through shame on all sides, trying to talk about the ways in which culture fails us and how we do not know how to talk to each other about sex 
and how that creates this huge imbalance and this huge fucking problem that like this huge fucking problem. Yeah. It's a problem. <laughs> fucking um, that, that blurs a line between assault and sex that should never be blurred because assault is not sex. It's power and it's brutality. It's not sex. And so the fact that that's so blurry, it's like, we clearly need to do more education, have more conversation. So I think that ha needs to happen now. This is how I'm answering your question with all of that preamble. I honestly think I might just like drop it in the night. Yeah. Somewhere. Like, I mean, like. Re just. Like. Yeah, just release it. Just release it. I'm unsure. I'm unsure yet what I'm going to do. I don't think working it out for like two, uh, two years in a theater um, on this topic is what to do. I think the piece, like I could work, keep working on this forever. Um, but yeah, I think this is something that people should just be able to see. Mm -hmm. Is swords going to stay, do you think, the link it is? And so much as like, you want to have one joke that feels like a joke that leads into it. Is that sort of where its role is in the show where it's like you're, you sort of talk about all these things sort of... That's like pretty much the last joke that I do before I start yeah, talking literally. about my you, story. Is that what I sort of its, its role is? Is that... Yeah, I think it's like the last... Like, <laughs> it's like the last gas station. Yeah. <laughs> before you're... Uh, out rolling through open highway. Um, what I've been also, look, I mean, part of this is also the challenge as a comic. I would be lying if I said that that wasn't part of it. And so to be able to like tell an audience your real vulnerable story and then get them back because there are like a couple really good laughs after, that to me is like kind of where I always wanna be as a mm -hmm. comic. Like how far can we push this? Like. So I can get you to be totally silent and then um, be with me in this moment and then we can laugh about that afterwards. Like that to me is, um, I mean, that's what I'm interested in. I mean, that alone is sort of st structurally subversive if to, in, in so much <laughs> as that like that is a style of comedy that is associated with the opposite type of comedy, right? There's the style of like really aggro people who like to lose audiences by being most offensive if possible and then sort of win them back. But you're, you're using sort of that for the exact opposite reason. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, laying myself bare. I mean, I don't know. I think I always have a physical sense that I'm bringing an audience toward me. It's like a really felt thing. Mm -hmm. I feel it. This is going to sound so hippie-ish, but like I feel the energy of it. I mean, it's really real. I swear to God, this is a real thing that happened to me. One time I was performing here in New York at like some basement show, and I had this feeling when I was on stage that I was a tree and that m roots were coming out of my feet and connecting to all of the audience members. And then after the show, I met Reggie Watts for the first time, and he came up to me and was like, hey, man, that was an amazing set. I mean, I think what I liked best about it was that you were a tree. And I was like, <laughs> Reggie, I fucking know. Like, <laughs> so anyway, that guy gets it. Yeah. Um, but I, I just feel like that thing that you're talking about, that like comic that's pushing people away mm -hmm. to bring them back in, I'm like bringing people in yeah. to bring them back in. Uh, we'll be right back with more Cameron Esposito after this word from our sponsor. Did you know that every single episode of Good One is now on Spotify? Yep, even that episode you listened to and were like, we'll never put this on Spotify, but they did. It's there. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. To subscribe to our show, search for Good One, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now. And now. And now. 
I want to talk to you about spaces, the spaces in which you perform. And I think a good place to start is if you can talk about sort of the, the, your history of where you performed and then sort of what you've tried to do to create spaces and, and sort of what has it meant for your material as sort of the spaces have evolved. That's a good question. Where is that coming from? Is it like something you ask everybody or is this for Cameron Esposito? It's for Cameron Esposito. Wow. Um, cool. I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I started in improv. I started in improv in college. I worked professionally in improv for a few years after college. And then when I moved back home to Chicago, I started my own stand-up show like immediately mm-hmm. and was just on MySpace booking like the top comics in Chicago. I just was like gutsy. I've yeah. just always been like gutsy about that. And being like, hey, um, I started a stand-up show. I don't have a microphone, but like, will you come by? And uh, I had that show for like maybe six months to a year. And from that got noticed and got put on the cast of the Lincoln Lodge, which was a long running alt room mm-hmm. in Chicago that used to be in the back of a, of a pancake house. Started working at the Lincoln Lodge. I started working at another show that is at the Beat Kitchen in Chicago called Chicago Underground Comedy. And those were alternative rooms. And that's really where I got my start. But I never crossed anything off the list. So sometimes when comics start in alternative rooms, they'll stay there. I also worked at the club Zanies. But it took me years Mm -hmm. to get in there. Years of going back and like auditioning repeatedly um, to finally get like house MC work and then feature work and then headline there and that's sort of what I've always been doing is like I know I'm a little different a lot of folks that there hasn't really been a me before me like if people would say what comic are you like um I mean a lot of times folks will tell me Ellen DeGeneres but that's because they don't know a lot of gay people. Yeah. Or Ellen's material at all. Because hers is very silly, but it, it's not very autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, and mine's very autobiographical. And um, also, like, I like, I like go hard. Like, performance style, I go hard. So I don't know who I'm like, but I don't think anybody really... And so, no, I, yeah, definitely not Ellen. There, there are certain, <laughs> I mean, like, not to be like, oh, you have to compare people to men, but there are male comedians that I think you're closest Kyle to. Kyle Kinane is who I used to say when people yeah. would be like, who are you most like? I would be like, Kyle Kinane. Yeah, it's like Kyle with Pete, Pete in yeah. there a little bit. It's the Chicago influence. Yeah. Um, who else would you say? TJ. Yeah, I know. But I think everyone who, once TJ existed, everyone's like, oh, I can maybe try to do something. But TJ then has now become like, Everything he does is a, like some sort of experiment where, right. um, but just that persona that I think Pete translated. And I think, I imagine lots of people see Kyle and like, I wish I can do something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it just, it, it was never a conscious choice. I came up in Chicago when those were like the upperclassmen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that affected my style. But I also think that to be a woman doing that is like very unplaceable for people. It's strange how unplaceable it is Um, because like Kyle's like physicality of standing on stage, he's so like sure in his body. He's like very rooted in Mm -hmm. his core and very like strong in his arms. And I'm a lot like that. I, I even was like, used to tour with Anthony Jeselnik. So like I picked up for a little while, like one of his hand gestures that I had to like then work back out. Um, 
So many people were like, oh, you're doing Jess Linux hand. I'm not, like, <laughs> honestly, I mean, Rhea would be the one that was like, you're doing, yeah. But, but it's funny, um, if you're a woman besides you, nobody ever compares you to dudes, which is like hysterical. It's yeah. like, I live, it's like, I'm just like operating in a parallel comedy zone where like, I only know about women. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I don't even know what we were talking about prior to that. Um, Oh, you were sort of a peculiar thing in terms oh, of spaces. Oh, yeah, right. So, like, I, there wasn't a place for me to plug in. There's never really been a place for me to plug in. So what I've always done is created my own thing and then worked to ingratiate myself to the things that exist, both the alternative things, and I don't mean alternative, like, alternative lifestyle, um, but alternative comedy is, like, comedy that happens in rock clubs or theater spaces, yeah. and then also worked, like, mainstream club rooms. I'm, I've always done all of it, and that is also kind of unusual. I mean, there are comics that do that. Like, your Ron Funches does that kind of thing. Um, but a lot of comics, like, pick, you yeah. know, what they are. I'm an alt comic, and I just play alt rooms. I'm a club comic, and I just play club, club rooms. And um, also, when I was first coming up, it was very taboo to be a gay comic that wanted to play for gay people. That was, like... Don't do that. Like that wanted to play for gay people. Yeah, like because that's what I was curious about. Gross. Because it that line of because I've heard you talk about how you're very motivated of trying to take sort of mainstream or just not queer rooms and make them more friendly for. That's right. Which is partly why I wanted to talk about you sort of turning spaces that are not queer more queer. But as a queer comedian, there's also that line of you want your audience to play for queer people as not trying to appeal to a mainstream audience? Well, it's very... I think, here's the thing. I would say I'm always trying to appeal to a mainstream audience. It's on them to recognize that. And I'm, I'm, that's going to sound like I'm like a real asshole, but I just mean like there's nothing about getting up and talking about the queer experience that is exclusionary mm -hmm. because I spend every fucking minute of my day hearing about your experience, ye old straight people in the room that I'm pointing at, um, and I mean, I have to watch your movies, so you should come have to watch our movies. It's art is art. Human experience is human experience. And I would say that's, that's, I want to be queer. I want to talk about being queer. And I want you to see that we are the same. Um, and that is also something that I think is a little bit of a newer and different perspective. Because I think sometimes folks have like, downplayed things so that they could work in a mainstream room or they have just made the decision early mm -hmm. on I am going specifically for a gay audience like um, I perform next to drag queens and we're yes. performing for a gay audience or the alternative which is like I don't really talk that much about my personal life but you said you you do you feel like the by not performing I mean I guess you were saying you do perform to gay audiences are you coming up you did well now now it's it's not something that's under my control. I don't mean that yeah. in a, like I play, I play bigger spaces yeah. and now you have fans. So the they come. Yeah. The people that buy tickets are the people that buy tickets. And, um, also since the election, I've really kind of lost any need to downplay being gay, whatever I thought I needed to do before. Yeah. I, I as, you know, I, I think it's that and also having a space that is your own. You have a weekly show. And, you know, I think, I th I think I want to talk to you about is, and I don't know as much as L.A. because I live in New York, but in New York there's a thing that's happening that I think is incredibly exciting, which is the, I'll use 
not using mainstream because mainstream we we some as like clubs and then alt. But if you lump clubs and alt as sort of one scene that was one way, which is sort of straight leaning, it is now becoming much more queer than I've ever seen it before. Like the not just sort of accepting of on a sort of representation matter, but also the the type of comedy that's being done has become much more queer, at least in New York. And I was and I was wondering if you felt like you've noticed similar things happening around you. And if you felt like hypothetically by doing material in mainstream spaces, you've helped usher that in to make you have to say how important you are. Yeah, I mean, what a trap. Um, <laughs> is this a safe space where I can be honest? Yes. And I don't have to and I don't have to say that none of it has anything to do with me. <laughs> you can I asked it knowing that it's more uncomfortable, I think. The most thing, the thing that comedians are most uncomfortable with. This is the with worst isn't... thing you could ever do to me. What you've done here. I'm. I'll say this. But I no. believe you have. I thank you. In what ways do you think it's possible that you might have? When I was, when I was working at these rooms in Chicago, when Chicago is like a feeder city, it's also its own great city and its own great scene. But to New York, so and to LA, so Chicago, a lot of those comics then transitioned into these scenes. There's a lot of comics who were like class, a couple classes below me who now work here. And the same thing in Los Angeles. I, when I started doing stand-up, there were like four women doing stand-up in Chicago, Jenna Friedman, Beth Stelling, and the Putterboss sisters. Um, there were like no queer com- comics that just worked mainstream rooms. Um, there was one other queer comic, Bill Cruz, who like sort of did some of each. Um, and I made sure that, that the Lincoln Lodge knew that it, it was important to me that we book diverse lineups because it makes white, straight men more interesting when there are other types of people on the lineup. And I, and I would say that again and again. Like, if you want to seem like a really genius comic, put someone else next to you. Like, this is, you can use this self-serving angle. Like, I believe these comics are also really interesting and valuable, but if you need to hear an an angle that helps you, just know that you'll seem more interesting Mm -hmm. if you follow someone that's different than you. And um, I ended up starting a stand-up class that was just for women, and it was supposed to help women write their first five minutes so that women could get on stage. I trained 200 women, and that class still runs today, and it's on its third teacher. I don't know how many women have been trained by that through, like, the The whole thing. But, um, I mean, 200 is how many I did, and then this is the third teacher. Um, Then, also, I ran an open mic that was deliberately inclusive and invited the women from that class to go get stage time there so that there was a mic that was more 50-50 on... um, representation between the sexes and I think that like getting on TV I mean I had like these moments on TV where um, I was being celebrated because I was gay not like in spite of it um, and not with hiding who I was had like a weird haircut for a really long time had a real weird haircut had Jay Leno say lesbians rule on Craig Ferguson and I absolutely without a doubt think that that has created a ripple effect throughout the community. And I didn't do it alone. I had a lot of support. There are other queer comics that I really look up to. But, um, yes. Now, to sort of bring back, do you feel like the material you do now 
you would be able to do without, not just sort of the fact of your life as your career, but sort of talking about the spaces alone. Do you feel like you could you could you can only do the material you do now with the changes that have happened to comedy spaces? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, also, we're, I'm so deliberate about the booking of our show at the UCB, and I'm, like, so specific about what that space feels like on Tuesday nights, and Rhea and I have been running it for a couple years, and, you know, like, you rarely hear, like, homophobic jokes, you rarely hear transphobic jokes, and so if you, people feel safe to come there as an audience and they can kind of relax. That being said, like, running this hour there was one of the most difficult experiences I've had with the hour, mm -hmm. because it's, like almost too safe um, for me because everybody there like is bought in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so a better experience was like I had the, I had a blast doing it in Nashville because uh, it's a city that's a little, that's very artsy but like maybe under, uh, but maybe not provided as many outlets for like something that's like super feminist and super mm -hmm. gay but really inclusive. So like I destroyed, I like murdered there. <laughs> And that feeling maybe is what it would have been in the past. Like, because performing in the space that I created is so safe and lovely. And I think it's better for other comics, honestly, than sometimes it is for me. Like for the guests on the show. Yeah, I think you, you figured out the way you need to exist or write is that there has to be an amount of talking to people that either, either changing of minds or not even changing because I think that implies that you go to an audience of, opposition and then making them on your side, which is a sort of expanding of minds. People yeah. that are on your side that you can then give, as I said earlier, sort of expand their vocabulary where if they're, they know you and though that you've never said these exact jokes to them, they sort of know already the three six eight of the psychology. There's, they're ultimately in a very basic comedy sense. So you're not surprising them. You're not. And I think you like having spaces grow. You like trying to make a thing grow. That's true. Yeah, I mean, you've got me. Like, you've got me pegged. That's absolutely it. I want to make a thing grow. I want to, like, leave my mark on a place. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's, like, being raised super Catholic or, like, just the sort of... <laughs> the the comics arrogance of like yeah. I just think I'm right you know like every comic thinks they're right otherwise we wouldn't do this job we wouldn't spend so much time talking about our opinions if we didn't think our opinions were valuable but yeah I would like to inherently change even if it's a little shift every room I've been in yeah absolutely because it, it is it is a comedian self regard but on a social sort of justice angle right it's like you believe in yourself but that you can change things opposed to like you believe in yourself that you're so funny that everyone needs to laugh <laughs> at you. Well, okay, so I'm going to loop this back around to the beginning of this interview, which is that like I have realized since doing this show that I am like, that I have been in my life fundamentally a scared person, somebody who is really harmed mm -hmm. by coming out, somebody who is really alienated, really isolated, um, and a survivor of many things, like of essentially like being pretty abandoned um, through the coming out process and then assault on top of that. And I think it's like the selfish angle is that I'm trying to make the world safer for myself. And the unselfish angle is that I really hope that that also includes other people. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not trying to make a bubble around myself that stops at me. Yeah. I'm trying to um, make the world safer for all of us through jokes. I, I was going to ask you about, you know, being political and not being preachy, which is, I think, a thing that is 
um, used as a pejorative towards political communion. And then I was thinking about how you've said, like, when you were younger, you wanted to be a priest. Yeah. And I was like, you you are essentially not, like, preachy is not an insult if your goal is preaching. <laughs> well, it sucks because I wish that preaching and preachy were, were like, yeah. had totally different connotations. Because I do think I'm preaching in the, well, I mean, Pete, too. Like, if yeah. you want to talk about Pete Holmes on stage, like, Pete and I have really similar backgrounds in terms of what we thought we were going to do with our lives. We thought we were going to be preachers. We thought we were going to talk to an audience of people about what we care about in the world while maybe sharing alcohol with them. And that is, in fact, what I do for a living. (laughs) But yeah, I hope it's not preachy because like, that's the whole point of comedy, right? Is to like slide in the lessons to like, Mm -hmm. to make the lessons um, fucking fun and interesting and like also uh, something that we're experiencing together. Like the laughter should be uniting us all. Recently in interviews, you've been saying art is, art is about t- taking down systems of power, otherwise it's propaganda. Oh, yeah. That and is something I've been saying. You've been saying it over and over, and I'm like, that is... God. I, I find it a great sentence, and I was like, I don't actually know what that means in practice. Like, I, I do, but I don't. And I, I, I'm asking so because those interviewers didn't ask you to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, screw them. So, you know, in practicality towards comedians especially... You know, you know, what does that mean? And sort of what does it mean for a comedian who feels like prior to this election, who who is on your side broadly, who's like, well, my job is to like give people an hour where they don't have to worry about that. It's sort of and that's a question to sort of as a person who writes about comedy or just probably everyone is probably thinking about like, what does it mean to be a person if you aren't doing that then? If you're sort yeah. of your voice was pre pre this election was like not doing these type of things. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, I think that's a really good question. I think that if you're not feeling this moment right now, first I would I would probably ask you to spend some time examining why that is, mm-hmm. um, and like wondering if you want to look back at yourself at some as somebody who did nothing. Um, but when I say the thing about being an artist and that art has to take down systems of power, that can be small. That doesn't have to be. That literally doesn't have to be the president, and that yeah. doesn't have to be. Um, the entire patriarchy. It, it, yeah, and it doesn't have to be the patriarchy, and it doesn't have to be... It literally is just like being a comic that goes... I mean, Rhea and I deliberately talk about being wives on stage because for so long, the thing of being a comic on stage talking about your wife is inherently negative, and then also you never got to hear from that person. So it's just like somebody you're describing who isn't on stage, who's who's like... Uh, like bag of bag of bricks that you have to carry around with you that you hate and everything's terrible. And like, well, what if actually it's still funny, but um, your wife is on stage with you and it's about how you love each other, but Mm -hmm. marriage is terrible because it's really, really fucking hard to be around somebody that much. You know, like that to me is the evolution of honesty there. Like I'm actually just saying, be honest. Like the systems of power are kind of inherently dishonest because they're, they're built for money. Like they're built for they're they're tricking us all into thinking that we're living free lives, and that's also fine. Like I'm, you know, we have to get through a day, but but that's not like the truth. Like your wife isn't a pain in the neck. If if you have some, if you have like especially the guys in the past that are saying this about like some wife that's at home doing like free labor for them while they get to go out and like joke around and drink. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you talking about the wife that puts your kids to sleep? Are you talking about the wife that cleans your house for free? Like, that person puts in a shit ton of time. 
like, like I'm not sure that you are a trustworthy narrator in this mm-hmm. moment. And so, like, those jokes were fine for then, of course. Like, we're understanding our tr- ourselves better every day. Just be honest about what your experience is. I can't remember where it was, but you you're, you really were talking about comedy as, like, a thing that actually can cause change. And Well, you it, just mentioned yeah. that you have seen queerness spreading yes. in these rooms. That means that I'm not the only queer comic that... That means, like, for so long, I literally would say, I am the queer person that you can meet yeah. so that you don't vote against my interests or so that you don't kill us. Like, I'm the queer person. Like, meet me. I'm very small and yeah. tiny and smiley, I'm, and I'm nice. So like meet me. Well, so if there's other people, and um, if there were before me, you know, that continue to be these ambassadors, like that's that's huge change. Why do you believe in comedy as a? Why do you believe in comedy as a thing that can do it, and as a form that deserves this part of your story? Oh my God, that's such a good. Way. <laughs> I just love it. I love stand up so much. I'm obsessed with it. I'm completely and totally obsessed with my job. Um, I mean, my, my look at listen to how serious we have been for an hour talking about joking around. Like that must mean it's worthwhile if we can take it so seriously. You're not even me. We're, we're ha- <laughs> I'm having a conversation with somebody outside of my own brain who's taking this this seriously. I think I think comedy is. I just can't believe I found it. Mm-hmm. Truly, I mean, I, so many people never find what they want to do, and then the odds that then you would get to do that thing and then that you would have some success doing it are ever approaching zero. It's like zero odds that that I am sitting here with you talking about this. And so like, why give comedy this material? Because like, comedy is everything to me. I mean, like the fact that I found it, the fact that it it found me, it's it's like incredible. I think it deserves more than this. I'm going to continue to push comedy. Uh, that sound means it's time for the laughing round. So it's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy. It's oh no! <laughs> oh no! Okay, yes, keep going. I'm bought in. What's your favorite word to say in a stereotypically Italian accent? Stereotypically <laughs> Italian American accent. Uh, Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's um, absolutely true. Uh, can you do any impressions? Any no. Page? You just can't do it. No, I can't do any impressions. That's true. I can't. I feel like this is Rhea's job in our relationship. Rhea I, can do all of them. I feel like if anything, it's worth having a public record of every comedian who can or cannot do. <laughs> can I, do I think them? we all want to know. Yeah. Um, so I saw you, your your tweet of a game you play with Rhea called Dream Date, and I think it's great. And there's only one example, so I would like to propose another one and see you play it. So first, explain the rules, and then can you do it with the the ghost of David Bowie? Oh my God, that's okay. Yeah, Dream Date is a game that Rhea and I recently invented. Well, I invented it and I forced Rhea to play it (laughs) because I love to talk about crushes. I think it's really fun to talk about crushes and Rhea kind of hates to talk about crushes because it makes them really uncomfortable. And so um, I was like, oh, here's a game. You throw out a person's name and then you have to think of the perfect first date with that person. And Rhea was like, I don't know. But then I started throwing out names and Rhea is amazing at dream date like such specificity great great Mm. games um so the ghost of david bowie what would be the thing that you okay all right go with me on this um i feel like the ghost of david bowie is probably still pretty fascinated by david bowie don't you think (laughs) like i am such a fan of bowie but 
but I think also he probably was a fan of himself. Mm -hmm. Like you, you have to be right. So I saw this amazing exhibit. David Bowie is it's here. Sure. It's in New York right now, but I saw it in Chicago like years ago. I like flew to Chicago to go to this exhibit and you can't take pictures. And I didn't read the signs. I'm taking like a thousand pictures of like his widest leg suits. Um, and it is like, it's amazing. He's doing mime work. There's, mock-ups of sets there's like guitars it's it's the most incredible collection mm -hmm. of ephemera and so you realize like oh my god he was really obsessed with cataloging his career because just to have that much stuff left over obviously yeah. he was a superstar but like he kept all those outfits he had all of it he had there's archival footage and stuff i absolutely if he's a ghost i assume he's transparent so he's like not gonna get mobbed um, I want to walk through David Bowie is with David Bowie. And I want to like hear the commentary like, oh, uh, like I hated this one. Like I want to hear that. And I want to like be like, David, you're too hot on yourself. You know, like I want to encourage him about the stuff he doesn't like that he did. Um, I think that'd be a great day. Similar in a dream category. I, I know you've had desires to be a, a late night host. Yeah, that's true. Can you think of what would be your dream uh, 100th episode? Oh my god, my dream one hundredth episode. Um, am so I start for you're going. You have mm -hmm. this sort of your length, what, and then go through each act essentially of a thing. This is impossible. What you've this task that you've given me. Okay, so here's what it, here's what I'll take. The, what I'll do is I'll take things from current shows mm -hmm. and tell you that I don't know what that thing. I don't have my show yet. Yeah, sure. So I don't know what my equivalent is going to be. But here's what I want. I want. Um, like, uh, so I come out with this sort of like Conan dancing vibe, like this in a is an, suit? in joke. Oh, absolutely in a suit, um, in Conan's suit, and it's <laughs> too long, idea. and it's you know it's like just a real mess. I, but I make that a joke, um, and then like the way Craig Ferguson used to do his monologues, like. That dude threw everything away, like didn't care about it. I love his relaxed style. I want to sit down and have like an Andy and Conan mm -hmm. type relationship because those dudes just love each other so much in, on that show. It's like such, but I also want to have Amy Sedaris and David Letterman's vibe where it's like somebody that I sort of discovered. I mean, like obviously Amy's been doing her own thing forever, but her appearances on there are as iconic as anything she's ever done. And um, so like, I want to have that vibe. I also, if we could just get like a real quick, uh, it's like a three minute B portion of the show where, uh, it's literally a B portion of the show because I do like political mm -hmm. commentary in the vein of Sam B who's sure. like just so good at it. And I love the way that she stands. I think she's good at occupying space. Um, and then, like, who do I want to, what do I want to do at the end? Oh, I mean, I love what, I love what Reggie Watts is bringing in terms of music. And so, like, probably that's in there, too. So let's see. Yeah, I had a guest. I had, like, a political segment. I had, like, my house band is Reggie Watts. Yeah, that's the, that's the monster that's show. show. Do you have a joke that... Uh, bombs. You do it over and over again. It keeps on bombing. You love it and you think it's funny and you'll never think it's not funny, but it'll never work. <laughs> I not. I turn over material pretty fast. So if something doesn't, I'm like kind of always on to the next 
But is there something you did that you sort of turned on? I'm going to tell you, there's something in here that I'm going to take out, or I just pointed to your laptop, but it's in the hour. Did you watch the full hour? Yeah. Yeah. So there's something in the full hour that I'm going to take out because it's not working anymore and it just stopped working. And I, it's such a bummer uh, because it was really working and I can't tell what I'm doing differently. But um, I talk in the beginning about how white people should feel very ashamed of Donald Trump being our president because we did that. And then I tell this story about doing, um, taping something actually with the Lucas brothers who are awesome, right? Like comics I really respect. And it's, they do this show where you have to take a lie detector test and then they ask you a bunch of questions. But the Lucas brothers happen to be black dudes. I'm a white person. The first question that they asked me was, have you said the N word? Mm -hmm. And so I'm hooked up to a lie detector and like all three of, I mean, it was just, it was such a, cause I said no, cause I haven't. And then they were like, um, like definitely we can't believe you just lied to our faces about this. Cause like, why did you, ha- why did you, mm-hmm. why are you like, why are you putting us through that? And then we look over and the lie detector guy is like, yeah, no, like she's telling the truth. And, but it was a very sweaty moment yes. and it used to work to describing that whole thing. And then talking about how that feeling of sitting there just like, oh my God, did I lose my friends? <laughs> Uh, that that is how white people should feel every day of this presidency. And it used to fucking work. An applause break every time. It just stopped working. What happened? I'm using the same wording. What happened to that joke? I don't know. White people started to feel less guilty two weeks ago? <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Exactly two weeks ago. Why I... did it used to work and now it doesn't work? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. That's it for another episode of Good One. Cameron Esposito's Rape Jokes will be released online on June 11th. You can hear her previous albums on Spotify or wherever you stream comedy. You can stream her TV show she created with her partner, Rhea Butcher, Take My Wife, on Stars, iTunes, Amazon, or, you know, wherever you stream such things. Follow Cameron on Twitter, at Cameron Esposito. Good One is produced by Nick Redd. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. And hey... If you know anyone who might, you know, like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new comedian and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.